Welcome to Education Suspended, a podcast focused on exploring, engaging, and dialoguing with those in education who are passionate about changing the status quo and evolving the archaic system we have inherited. Education Suspended is a production of Intricate Roots Educational Consulting Services. Our editor and production manager is Katie Kunin. Our producer is Jamie Higa, and our music is provided by Poets Row. Hey everyone, Jessica Pfeiffer here. Welcome to Education Suspended. Hopefully I don't sound like I'm underwater anymore. I'm feeling better, but boy, that cold was a doozy. I just got back from Austin, Texas. Got to visit some amazing schools out there. It's cool. It's a cool experience. I was there in 2018 and trained that district and some of those staff. And it's definitely a rewarding experience to go back and see all the cool stuff that they're doing years later. But enough about me. Let's get into today's episode. We sit down and connect with Rachel Parker. I'm really excited about this episode. We, we actually recorded this one a while ago. Um, but you all know what we do. Sometimes we record and we hold on to them. I really felt that this would be a good one as we start wrapping up the school year. I know that we, you know, depending on where you're at, you probably got about a month and a half left, but Rachel's got such an amazing journey. I actually went to grad school with her. It's been so inspiring watching her as a professional. She started as a school social worker. She then became a special ed teacher and taught for nine years. And now she's an administrator. She's an assistant principal and has been doing that for three years. And so just the lessons that she's learned and that she shares with us are, are so paramount amount. She, you know, highlights and just places truth where truth needs to be that the inequity that exists in education is trauma. And and for so many of our families, years of not having a voice, that's trauma. She highlights that the work that our teachers do is mental health work. They do it all the time. But unfortunately, because we've siloed our SEL world from our academic world, it's hard to understand that. Um, It's a great interview. I hope you all enjoy it. Please sit back and enjoy Education Suspended with Rachel Parker. Rachel, thanks for joining us today and chatting with us. Um, I know, Rachel, actually, we went to grad school together. And you're still friends. And we're still friends. (laughs) Yeah, she's a a strong person to remain friends. When was that? How many years have you been friends now? 2006. Six. Bless yeah. me. Made my way out to Denver, Colorado via Luther College. Let's just keep going with that. Why don't you introduce yourself, how you landed in the position that you have now, and even kind of your role as a student and how that impacts you. So I'm Rachel Parker. Currently, I'm an assistant principal at Prairie View High School, which is a large high school, about 1,800 students just northeast of Denver. My journey to get there was kind of interesting. So I started off at Luther College, majored in social work because didn't know what else I wanted to do. And I had an advisor say, hey, why don't you like working with people? Why don't you try social work? Didn't know anything about it. Didn't know social workers growing up. Didn't even know that field. But by the time I graduated, loved it. Was like, yep, this is my niche. This is what I want to do, but wanted to continue. So got my master's out in Denver at University of Denver. Did the master's program in social work with an emphasis on social work for Latinos. Had a really good experience at DU, learned a lot, was challenged a lot, but then graduated, got a job with DPS, but it was a one-year grant. And then my second job was in Brighton as a school social worker. And so loved being in the schools. Thought it was such a authentic way to work with youth because you see them every day. You see them in this environment of how they interact socially. 
So I did that for a couple of years. I was split between a middle school, which ooh, middle schoolers bless any middle school teacher because. Oh, thank you. Thank <laughs> you. Steve. Yeah. That's what you did. Right. Yeah. Look at me. And I they survived. Are, they are so funny and hilarious. So I was split between middle school and high school. Loved it. Got to meet with kids one-on-one, really learned the special ed world as a social worker did small groups, got into the classroom for a couple of years, but I always found myself loving the classroom. Like anytime I ran a program called Why Try in an intervention English class once a week, and I loved it. Kids were engaged, they were fun. And I realized that, ooh, the work of a social worker is very authentic when you can do it in the classroom. So I was like, oh, that's where I want to focus. That was, it just, that gave me energy. And so I had the chance to become a special ed teacher when we had a teacher leave. My principal at the time took a chance and said, hey, are you interested? You'd have to go back to school to get your master's in social or in special ed, but I would hire you on emergency license if you wanted to. Wow. So I was like, yes, I'm in. I would love it. So, And I loved the high school. And at the time I was coaching basketball. So I just felt completely connected to Prairie View. So my first couple of years, I was in school learning how to be a special ed teacher while being a special ed teacher, which is hilarious because I'm like going back to my classes going, okay, so this happened in school. What do I do? (laughs) So it was this constant like learning. I was kind of building the plane as I was flying it, but it was cool because our high school had a center-based program for students with emotional disabilities. So that was my student population. That's who I worked with. That's who I was integrating into gen ed classes. That's who I was trying to protect from some of our discipline policies and transitioning. That was challenging. And, but through that, I started tutoring kids. They'd come to me and they're working on math and they couldn't understand math. So I found myself tutoring kids in math all the time. And so then I kind of got cocky with my principal at the time and said, well, I could teach math. And so she needed a math teacher and said, okay, prove it. So I had to pass my math test. And then I started doing intervention math classes at the high school. Loved it. Realized the role of a math teacher is you're teaching half math and half life lessons. Um, So still getting to use social work in the classroom and realizing, oh my gosh, this is important work that teachers do on a daily basis with kids. So yeah, loved it. And then decided when there was an assistant principal job at our school in the same school, so I kind of moved up that, yeah, I kind of want to try a new challenge. And the idea of working with teachers to support them with the stuff they do in a classroom seemed important to me because through all this, I never felt burned out. I never felt like I was wanting to throw in the towel. And I'm like, maybe I have something that I could help teachers do that makes their job less stressful. So I'm here. <laughs> so how long have you been in an administrator? This is my second year. Year. Okay. Yeah. It's interesting that you have this mental health background and that you're so into I mean, your journey took you to so many places. And I'm wondering, how has there been a compliment, right? How has the mental health background that you bring complemented your work as a teacher, now as an administrator? And then on the flip side, what were some of your biggest adjustments? So bringing social work into the classroom was great. As a social worker, you work with kids one-on-one. You're trying to build skills and resiliency so that when they go out in the classroom or the community, they're transferring those skills. So I was sitting in my office providing support for students and then I would see them in the halls and those skills weren't transferring. So I was like, okay, this isn't an effective strategy when we're really trying to support the kid and how they interact with their world. So then when I moved into teaching, same thing of now I'm trying to teach these things, but I have them in a classroom. So balancing 
discipline class management with understanding an individual student's needs was a challenge because you're trying to maintain this level of control in a classroom while another kid is having a really rough day or you know what I mean like you're just trying to balance both and so sometimes that lens was hard because I would lose the class because I was focused on one kid who I knew was struggling so trying to figure out that balance and capacity of what can you do as a teacher to support kids because I couldn't start having a one-on-one session with them and so that balance was really challenging the awesome thing is my building allowed me which I'm so thankful for to handle my classroom and handle my discipline so that I wasn't sending issues out of my classroom. I was able to handle it within my classroom, which was awesome because then, you know, schools have a discipline matrix that if a kid does this, this is the consequence. If they do this, this is the consequence. My administration allowed me to choose those my own consequences or resolutions within my classroom, which was awesome because then I could balance if a kid had an explosion, like I had a student one time who, when she started to get upset, she would just rip things out of her backpack and you could see it happening. So I would just remove the other students from my class and she would have a complete explosion. She was throwing desks, throwing chairs. She was safe. We were observing her. My kids were safe. And then she would finish. Well, in a lot of schools that would have been, we're going to suspend you. We're going to send you home. You have detention. And I could pause and say, okay, now clean it up. And she'd be like, what? You're not sending me home? Nope. Like, let's clean it up. Let's see what you need. And then let's keep going with class, which I don't know how many buildings allow for teachers to be able to be creative with how they handle their own class. And I think that mental health lens, understanding where kids are coming from, some of their past trauma, some of the stuff that you talk about, Jessica, really like it's important to know. And it's important as teachers that you remember that. Let me clarify though. So were were you given kind of the independence because you had that mental health background or was that just a philosophy of your entire school? I don't know. I think, to be honest, I think some of my personality was my assertiveness is like, I got this, let me handle this. And at the time we had a Dean who was very much, you do this, I'm sending you home. You do this, I'm sending you home. You do this, I'm sending you home. And I hated that because what's a kid learning? Like if you bust a kid for weed and you send them home, they're going to go home. They're going to go and smoke weed. And yeah. And they come back or same thing of we don't, if a kid bombs a math test, cause they didn't have the skills to do well on it. You don't send them home for that. Like you work on the skills. If a kid's wow. behavior is that bad, sending them home, isn't going to change their behavior. It's like, no, no, no. How do we work through this? I mean, I laugh one time I had two boys that I, they were they know how they were pushing and they were pushing me. They were testing my limits and I was not doing well. First time ever I had called security and they knew something was wrong because I had called security. I never do. So I had three assistant principals and our three campus supervisors like running to my classroom because these two boys, I was, they, I was done with them. And so I was like, I need a break. So I left the classroom. They supervised my classroom. My assistant principal was like, did you just call security on yourself? And I was like, yeah, I'm not regulated right now. (laughs) They're being teenagers. They're doing what they're doing. I'm not regulated. And he's like, well, what do you want to do with them? I was like, I just need a break for a day. Do you want me to suspend them? Nope. I just need a break. Let's bring them back. Let's talk about it. So that kind of like the the fact that my school allowed me to do that and wasn't so rigid with their discipline, I think really taught me a lot, helped me process, helped me grow as a teacher. And then definitely as an assistant principal, when I had to take over discipline. Yeah. 
that was a question I had for because the traditional role that I remember in my years in the middle school was the assistant principal was the mm-hmm. the heavy, the disciplinarian. And now you bring in a whole new outlook. I, I'm just really curious how that chemistry is working out. <laughs> no joke. My first day as an assistant principal, my discipline was my role. The day had like barely started. It was first hour and we all have headsets and on the radio, what you hear fight, fight, fight. It's my first day. So I'm like, what's happening? So we get them. Two kids had a fight. We had a new kid transfer in. We had rival gang issues. There was a fight in a classroom. Blood was everywhere. Kids get brought down. I've got a kid in my office who was like bleeding. So I'm trying to get them cleaned up. And it just so happened we had three officers in our building that day. And so they're waiting to ticket this kid. And I'm just like, I don't know what to fill out. I don't know what to do. Like, it just hit me so fast. Yeah. And I was like, I, I'm not cut out for this. Like, I don't know how to handle fighting. The awesome thing, I had um, a colleague who was a special ed teacher who was working on restorative justice practices. We like got together and we talked about the trauma from that classroom. Those kids in the classroom saw a physical fight, saw blood go everywhere, saw their teacher panic. So we went into that classroom and worked with those kids and let them have reflection time. What did that feel like to see a fight? Like, are you doing okay? Do you want to talk about it? Being able to be creative and do restorative stuff for the classroom, for the the whole population of kids who had to see that. And that was like an aha moment for me of like, okay, it's not always just about the kids who got in a fight. It's who does it, who did it impact? Yeah. Yeah. A little further with that story. I'd love to hear the result. (laughs) Um, I have to be honest, it wasn't the best result. Steve, you probably know us in a classroom when you bring a new kid in or a kid leaves, it completely changes the dynamics and the balance of the classroom. We had a couple kids transfer in and a couple kids leave that just threw off the balance of our student population. So both of those kids ended up after multiple attempts to re-engage them. One ended up going through expulsion and going to another school and the other one ended up dropping out. Can I ask about the rest of the kids though? The ones that you Mm -hmm. met with as a group, I really the most curious about how did they respond to your intervention? So that was the most eye-opening to us. A lot of the kids said it wasn't a big deal. It didn't have an impact on me. Like, that's normal. Why would we want to talk about that? It was really interesting that, like, they had never been asked that. And they also, a lot of them were like, I'm fine. Like, I don't need to talk about it. We had two students who, because when we met with them and debriefed with them, had their own domestic violence or, like, violence in the family. It just, it triggered stuff for them. So we worked with them and then connected them with their counselors so that they knew they had a check-in. I want to stick with this. So we've talked about kind of the role that it's helped in discipline. Are there any other benefits that you've seen in in your role as a teacher and administrator that kind of having a mental health background has supported you? And then, you know, again, moving into Mm -hmm. maybe the hardest adjustments. Well, and it's funny because having the mental health background and being in education, it's such a, the lines are so blurred that sometimes I don't know, is this my mental health background that's helping make this easier for me? Or is it years of experience in the classroom and dealing with the trauma of students that have kind of guided that because it's really teachers do this work all the time. Like the amount of trauma and stories and stuff that they hear on a daily basis that they're dealing with is it's a lot. And so just going through the training and the therapy and how to talk and what questions to ask, I think has helped 
because I don't avoid tough conversations. I don't avoid tough conversations with kids, with parents, with teachers, that those tough conversations I feel are truly important. And so sometimes teachers feel uncomfortable asking kids kind of personal questions. And I don't shy away from that because I truly want to know and understand that student to be able to figure out, okay, how do we help? How do we support? Why are these behaviors happening? And I think not shying away from that is important. Like I had a student who transferred to us, same thing, first couple of days, getting in physical fights, cursing out our security officers, lots of, lots of issues, really bad fight on campus that led to him getting arrested. When that happens, I have to, I go to court and show up and talk on the school's behalf. So I did that. Mom was not happy with me, rightfully so. And so for him to come back to school, we had to have a re-entry meeting. So mom knew I suspended the kid. I was there at court and I had to have her come back. So mom's in this meeting with us. We're talking and she hints at something of her own trauma. And so I stopped and I said, do you want to tell me more about that? And so then mom just unloads her own trauma and how she's carrying that with her, with her son and how she's parenting. And it was this breakthrough for us where after that, she was on my team. I was on her team. If her son was having a rough day, she would call me in the morning and say, Hey, can you check in with him? I'm really worried about his behaviors. So I think that mental health stuff of like probing, asking, not shying away when someone tells you something intense or that's really heavy to just kind of lean into that because that gives you a whole picture of the student and the family and what's going on. Well, I like that. And you also said teachers for the most part actually do a lot of I'm going to do quotes again on a podcast. You can't see it. Mental health work. Yeah. But there's, so it's kind of this dichotomy of like, they do this mental health work in regards to that relational component. And yet there still exists these silos from, uh, from our lens of, oh no, that's something for the mental health. That's the school social worker's job. I just teach math, but you're doing both, right? You're kind of like this example of in the perfect environment educators are doing and have the capacity to do both. Mm -hmm. And I had an aha moment last year. So I was doing discipline. I was getting these kids backstories and what's going on in their life. And when they were in my office, because a teacher wrote a referral or had security pick them up because they had an explosion, I was the first one who got to really ask like, what's going on today? Like you've never had an issue in so-and-so's class what's happening. So I was the first one who got that and realizing the teacher didn't get that same experience as I had. The teacher got the blow up, but not the sit down what's going on. And I was leading a group of teachers instructionally. And one of the teachers brought that up. I wish we knew more about their backstory because it did live in a silo. It lived with administration or it lived with counseling. And then the teachers only got the result, the behavior. And so we started doing a couple of things, counselors and administrators. When we talk to kids and we learn something personal that might impact how they're acting or behaving in the classroom, we ask the kid, Hey, are you okay if I share this with your teachers? Because that little perspective helps teachers so much. Like it softens them. It allows them to do exceptions. It gives them a reason to treat a kid differently. And I know that's not, that doesn't sound right, but it, it does. It like gives them a different lens with how to approach a kid. And just that little step of, are you okay if I share this with your teachers, gets rid of the silos, gets everyone kind of on this same page of, okay, how do we support this kid and the behaviors that are coming from what he's dealing with or what she's dealing with. How willing are the kids, high school kids, to have you share with their teachers? You'd be surprised. They're really willing. A lot of them want to share it. 
And, and I always, I always ask for permission and I usually let them read the email that I write to their teachers. And so some is, some are like, yeah, you can tell them everything. Some is like, ah, and I'm like, well, how about if I just tell them this, that you're going through some stuff at home that are causing you to have a hard time paying attention. And they'll be like, yeah, that's good. So getting that permission, it's funny. Sometimes our kids with the biggest barriers are screaming to want to actually share. They just don't know how to do it. And so to ask them and to involve them with that, I think helps a ton. When they come into you kind of dysregulated, heightened, whatever, what do you do first (laughs) as an assistant principal to kind of regulate them enough so you can have that really serious pointed conversation? Uh, and I've messed this up a ton. Like, <laughs> I mean, I've asked a question and have triggered a kid again. So I do not, there's no perfect way. I don't think I mastered that whatsoever. But I think it's funny because kids obviously have a very different perspective than what a teacher wrote a referral for or that kind of stuff. So some of it is just sitting with the kid and letting them process everything verbally, sharing everything that happened and then trying to talk through and dig through the pieces Starting with, here's your consequence, that doesn't help. Here's what the teacher said you did, that doesn't help. That just gets them defensive. So just allowing them the space to talk. And I didn't feel effective at that and worried about, am I doing too much of this social work therapeutic role and not actually doing some of the discipline stuff? But even kids who had like, it was cut and dry, you got in a fight like over lunch. We have to like, I have, there's gotta be a consequence or- you brought drugs to school. We, there's got to be a consequence. Some of that, even when kids get a consequence and you built that relationship, they'll come back. They'll ask for support. I had a kid I suspended who was really upset about it. I thought that relationship was completely broken. And he came back the next week and was like, "Miss Parker, can you help me? I want to look at colleges and I don't know how to start researching. I don't know why he came back to me to ask for that, but it was like, okay, something about that relationship. We I built some kind of relationship, even Mm -hmm. though he got suspended and there was a consequence that he felt like it was a safe place to come back to. It sounds like as an assistant principal, you're still, there's kind of some policies that you still suspend kids. How are you, how do you deal with that? Because you just also started the podcast saying that you don't believe in suspensions. It's really hard. The biggest internal struggle I think I've ever experienced in education is And I think it comes from the mental health lens. I can understand what an individual student needs. I can understand that this student acted out because of this, but I also have 1800 students that we have to keep safe to feel safe and respect their own boundaries and like expectations. So sometimes like fighting, you can do three to five days. And so it's like, I'm going to cut that short because you talked about it. You understand the consequences. You understand why you did it. You're open to having a mediation with that student. Some of how students react to their behavior also can guide you in what your next steps are. We we stop ticketing for drug offenses. Why are we going to send you home? Why are we going to ticket you? If our students are high at school, that's not safe for them. So we have a parent can pick them up. That suspension used to be three days. Why? No, go home for the afternoon. You're going to be back at school tomorrow. Not high. (laughs) And so trying to balance that, it's really hard. I have a student who had severe trauma, who was extremely explosive and would black out. He was one, and Jessica, I think we talked about him. He was one where when he was having that moment and he was a pacer, he had one area of the building that it was like a circle 
where we would let him pace and we would walk with him, but explosive, he would punch walls. He like his language was extremely offensive and intense. But if we knew we could keep him in a safe place, I'm not going to suspend him for that. I'm not going to send him home, but he had to help follow in. This is your area. If you go outside this area into the commons area where all the kids are, that's where we're going to have some problems because that's where it's not safe for the other kids. And he did good. He was one, one of our other assistant principals worked with him because he got into essential oils and so he would like, she had it and he would be like, and he, he would think about his happy place was trees and waterfalls. And so he, when he'd be in my office, punching the wall, going tree, waterfall, tree, waterfall, trying to regulate himself. I love it. He punched a hole in the wall. I didn't send him home. He worked with our custodian to patch the wall. Those are the yeah. things that- That's skill building. Mm-hmm. I've had amazing principles through the time that allows the opportunity for that. That allows, yeah, for, yeah we're not going to send a kid home. Yeah, we're going to try to work with these kids. But it's when the safety of the other kids are impacted that it really, that's the conflict for me. Sure. Yeah. But it sounds like your consequences always come with relationship. Yes. At the foundation. Uh-huh. I mean, consequences are messy, but relationships seem to smooth things out mm-hmm. and, and make it understandable. So the relationship doesn't have to go away. Even trying as an assistant principal, trying to hopefully maintain a relationship with my teachers too. Like I want to trust when they send a kid out, they want to know something happened. And so what that is, I think oh, is yeah. important for assistant principals to, or deans to also to realize that not all the teachers need or want the same thing for discipline. So if they send a referral, I would always respond with what would be the best? How do you want me to handle this? Do you want a break for the day? Do you want to sit down and talk with the student? Do you want a letter? You know what I mean? And so trying to figure out how will that teacher feel? Okay. Having that kid come back in class, but also not, I'm not just going to send him home because you know what I mean? Because he had an update in your class. We did a lot of mediations with teachers that I think helped a ton. You're thinking critically, like what is the actual best solution? Mm-hmm. What we're doing is not working. Granted, to your point, not only is there a focus on the relational component with your students, but I just go back to like that example that you shared with the families, right? Like you're working hard to bring the families in knowing that that's mm-hmm. a huge piece. And that's not easy either. Like I've had families, their son got in a huge fight and we're trying to talk about what are the next steps and how do we avoid this? And the parents' response is, well, did you win? And then I'm like, oh no, I don't know. <laughs> we clearly have different <laughs> perspectives and ideas of appropriate behavior. But I realized that was one I've never been in a fight. Like no one's picked a fight with a five nine redhead. Um, <laughs> so like, I don't see that as a way to solve a problem. And many of our kids do, and they think that that's an okay way to solve a problem. So then I'm like, okay, how do I take my perspective and somehow merge it with their perspective, knowing that we're not going to agree, but I, we can both decide that this behavior is unsafe at school, like outside of school. I'm not going to monitor that. The cultural implications, right? And I know that you are all doing quite a bit of equity work. So how are you tying your equity work, I guess, into this theme of discipline and, and culture? Mm-hmm. We did a lot of work. So another assistant principal and I split discipline for the whole building. And we were, we did a lot of work. We pulled the data to make sure that the referrals and who we were suspending matched our student population and wasn't completely our, you know, our boys being suspended at a much higher rate than girls. And so we would get that data and we would look at it. The hard pieces from teacher referrals, it was not imbalanced. It fit our student population. We weren't seeing 
students of color suspended or referred for discipline stuff at a much higher rate. It was very balanced. What we saw that was very imbalanced and really threw off our numbers was physical fighting was the majority was our male students of color and then drug offenses. And so very tangible discipline stuff, but it's still an issue. Like it's still not okay. And we need to do something in our building that these are the students who are choosing to solve their problems by fighting, which then results in suspension. So trying to just balance that was not easy. What is the racial makeup of your school? Oh, I knew you were going to ask me this and I don't know. We're a minority majority school. I think we're just over 50% Hispanic. 10 to 12% black, probably maybe a little bit lower. It's a fascinating school. We're out in a developing neighborhood that's developed over the last 10 years, lower, cheaper houses. So a lot of families move from Denver out there because cheaper housing. So you get some more kind of urban families, mentalities. We have very rural communities, farming communities that have generations of farming. Our building make it also just very rich and diverse and it's awesome. How are you taking advantage of that? When I was listening to you describe it, I thought it could be clashy, but it also could be rich, like the word Mm -hmm. you just used. It's not easy because like Jessica said, we have, we're working with, it's called EOS, it's Equal Opportunity Schools. Their main priority is making sure students are taking advanced placement classes. Students of color are having the same opportunity to take AP classes as what we think of your very like white middle class, good student. You're right, Jessica, I did quotes and you can't see it on a podcast. Fantastic. <laughs> um, <laughs> but making sure, so we started that work a couple years ago. So looking at what kids are being referred for AP classes or actually taking AP classes or being successful. And how do we take away the barriers? Like, how do we take away, why do you have to have this grade or this attendance to take an AP class? Maybe you had that grade and that attendance because you were bored. You know what I mean? And we're being challenged. Why do we require a parent permission to take an AP class when some of our parents are not involved? So we've been working hard to take down those barriers and have seen a lot of gains of getting more kids to take AP classes because the research shows that even if they're not scoring high on the AP test, that it's still preparing them for post-secondary education and like being challenged, they're better prepared Mm -hmm. for college. So we started that work this year with all the, this year more than anything in a pandemic with a lot of social unrest, we decided we can't shy away from those conversations. We have to address this as a building and make sure all of our students feel safe and welcome and that they feel heard and we see them. So even in a pandemic, our building decided we still are going to move ahead with equity work. We did a lot of stuff with our staff. We talked about white privilege. We talked about our own personal experiences in school. We talked about what microaggressions look like and in classes. Teachers were so engaged in wanting to continue that conversation. I had teachers say like, I want to keep talking about microaggression so I can make sure I'm not making that mistake in the classroom. Because when you know, when you know more, you just do better. We had a handful of teachers who said, I want to keep talking about this. So we're running um, a group to do professional development. They're looking into our curriculum and saying, is this culturally responsive? Does this match our student population? And if not, what changes can we recommend to our district so that our, our students are being represented in what we're teaching them? Does the, the racial makeup of your teaching staff match the students? No, and we talked about that too. Nope. Our school, we have primarily, primarily white teachers. 
do not match our student population. We've talked about that as well. We also do trusted adult training. So when our kids, all of our kids take a survey of this is what courses I'm interested in taking. This is maybe why I am or I'm not taking an AP class. And they, we have students identify trusted adults in the building. It may or may not be a teacher. It might be a counselor, a custodian, a para. So they do that. And then we get those cards. As an AP, I had two kids who listed me as trusted adults. So now I reach out to them and say, okay, we're about to do registration. Like what classes are you taking? We can keep encouraging our kids and keep letting them know like, yeah, you have support in the building. Are the parents- like That's that's a great system. Yeah. Are the parents made aware of this or is it just between the, the students and the school? It stays mainly with the students in the school. I mean, we communicate with the families, but I, that's definitely something that we are not strong in or have not had a ton of success of how do we bridge our school and our families. I don't know, Jessica, if you've ever been to Prairie View, it's literally kind of in a prairie and then new housing developments have come up around it. So there's not a central spot that is the community. We pull mm-hmm. kids from, they're just all over the place. And so that's one piece where we know that we have to get better at. School in the pandemic has, I think, created a a more dynamic system for all of us, like a changeable, painful, all the struggle, but it does create this dynamic system allowing for potential good change. Mm -hmm. How are you guys handling that? And what, what kind of positives are potentially coming out of this? I mean, I would say in August, there was... (laughs) no positive. Everyone was drinking from a fire hose of learning something new. We were very concerned about the equity gap, but we are trying to say, okay, what skills are they learning during this? We've talked about kids now are starting to learn how to be independent learners. I think the pandemic is the only thing we could have done to really force teachers to taint, like change their teaching practices, to try some new digital tools, to try different ways of giving feedback or assessing kids. Our kids were cheating all across the board. And my teachers are like, they're cheating on everything. And we kind of came together and said, okay, revamp the questions. You have to ask better, thoughtful, application-based questions so a kid can't cheat through it. And one of my math teachers just said, this has forever changed how we're going to write assessments now. Hmm. Like, And I was like, awesome. Don't go back to your old ways. Challenge your new way of learning. Yeah. We're really going to focus on what do you hang on to? What worked in this setting? The other thing we're going to have to hit hard is How do you reconnect with kids? Those kind of things are really important. How do you bring in SEL work every day in your classroom? Because kids need it and they're going to need a lot of it. Have you seen a long time? Yeah. Yeah. Have you seen, I mean, I'm just assuming that your role historically, that was more student focus as the assistant principal. Did that shift to be more adult focus this year? And how did you use mental health to support that? Mm -hmm. I would say the first couple months of school, my door was a revolving like tissues and tears because like riding the wave of teacher's own trauma during this process and their own experience that's been my focus and ask the principal it's how do I make teachers lives easier so really showing a ton of grace to teachers because the amount of balancing they've done has been crazy okay so you have all these skills that you bring right and I and I know I keep talking about mental health and I don't want to sound like a broken record how do you teach teachers the stuff? It's a great question. Because again, like I said, sometimes my lens, I don't know if my lens is because of my mental health background or because of the experiences. I think, Jessica, your training on trauma 
I think is so crucial to change teachers' perspectives of just giving them a different lens. Your perspective, Jessica, on your trauma training is very much an analytical lens, which we notice our teachers who are much more analytical. If you tell them the why and the research, they're on board. They'll get it. They might not be touchy-feely like some of our teachers, and we're definitely not elementary school teachers in that realm, but if they know the why, it just softens their lens of how they work with kids. And I think that's so important. We talked to about, there's an SEL push there. You know what I mean? SEL work is so important. This is what we have to teach these skills. Teachers freak out about that a little bit because they're saying, I don't have the training. I don't have the mental health background to support these kids and all the this baggage and stuff that they bring to the table. And because we put a label to it, yeah. I'm like, teachers, you've been doing this work for 20 years yeah. now. Like nothing's different. You're connecting with kids. You're listening to kids. You're responding to kids and making kids feel safe. Like that's the work. That's the mental health work we need teachers to do. It's not, it's not a therapy session. It's you take on information. If you hear something about a student, you take it in, you ask questions, you validate, you say you're there from them. And then you refer it out to a mental health specialist. You know what I mean? Like that's the process. You don't have to be their therapist, but I think sometimes labeling it has caused teachers to feel unqualified for the work that they've already been yeah. doing done well, for years. Well, done mm-hmm. it for years. Yeah. Yep. I like how you said that. I, I know receiving this training as a t- trauma training as a teacher, I could look back and, and I think sometimes teachers need to do it. They need to look back and see all the good things they've done all along the way. Mm-hmm. And, and then and then build on that. But you're you're spot on. The understanding of trauma from a a neuroscience perspective, mm-hmm. that's a that's a game changer in especially in in reaching out to certain kids who seem to be the most troubled of all. Mm-hmm. And that's where I found that that perspective was invaluable. Yeah. In, in thinking of new new things to try, but also celebrating. And I hope teachers are doing it, celebrating the good things they already do. Mm-hmm. Which is a, you just, I'm just repeating what you said. Well, and it's, it's not just the trauma lens. I think, Rachel, it sounds like the work that you are really trying to bring to your system for equity is just an, as important, right? Like mm-hmm. the inequities that exist in education mm-hmm. and you, you see it every single day and, and they're very similar, but that's, that's a huge piece. That's a huge piece. Because for a lot of our families, that inequity is the trauma. Like that is the like years of not being heard or seen or having a voice. Like that is the trauma that they bring to the classroom. Yeah. Sorry. I'm in the middle of writing that down because that's, I love that. (laughs) I, I, I've been dying. I don't even care if this ends on the pot on, on the podcast. I'm just dying to ask Rachel a question about high school kids. Now I was a middle school guy and you just mentioned primary kids, elementary kids, the touchy feely side of them. And, and I, that's certainly true in middle school, but I have to ask you, and I have to wonder how many of our high school kids really are trying to discover that child inside as well. Mm-hmm. And that maybe they, they might need a little bit more of that playful interaction Mm-hmm. themselves. Oh, I agree. I think high school sometimes treat them too much like adults when they still have that inner child. They still, and I think teachers shy away from some of those activities and classes that create this goofiness or the, you know what I mean? Like, I think we try to treat them like adults too soon where they want to be kids. They want to be goofy. And when you see those glimpses, that's the fun part as a teacher. 
I love but you that. also have to model that too in the building. So you have to be comfortable as an adult and as a teacher to let loose and allow for things to get kind of crazy and chaotic. Yeah. How do you model it? You do it. Like our administration, when we have dress up days, our teachers did spirit week where all the teachers were dressed up in costumes just to model. Like I've gone to meetings, look dressed like a superhero because it was spirit week. And like, if they see the principal and the assistant principals are like, our admin team is pretty hilarious. We have one who, even when she was a teacher would go like all out for spirit days and you have to give them permission and they'll think you're crazy and they'll make fun of you. And it's like, okay, that's awesome. Like maybe dress up next time. Yeah. Okay. So I wasn't planning on going into this, but I want to talk about coaching for a second because you you were a really good basketball coach. I know that you, you, I, I just watched you, but I also know that you receive awards for kind of the work that you did as a coach. Are there elements of coaching that align with what you do and as an administrator? Well, that's a great question because having, I had so much more control because I got to make the rules as a coach and I have much more of a structure that I have to operate under as an assistant principal. But yeah, I think the same thing with coaching. I think there is a way to push and have expectations, but still pause, get to know your kids, allow for them to say, coach, I'm struggling. You know what I mean? Like, I think you can have both. Same thing as an assistant principal working with discipline or any, even with teachers of you can have high expectations and push and want the people you're working with to be the best, but also understand what they're, what they're doing with their own personal stuff. Which I love because I still get texts from my players when they're going through life changes, when they're transitioning, when they're coming out, when they're getting a new job, when they're having a baby. Like I still get those texts and that means the world to me because that, that connection piece is, they learn more than just basketball. And so I hope for this, I have the same thing. I had a student the day before school start, send me an email. I taught her two years earlier. So she said, I've had a really bad summer. And so I emailed and said, Hey, can I call you and check in? So she says, I have a break from work at this time. I call her. She had lost her brother to suicide a few weeks prior. Mm. Just that connection piece. I had taught her two years earlier. She just knew that I always advocated for her again, has her own trauma, drug issues in the family, those kind of things. So the fact that she reached out for help, I was like, I love it. I got a text from her last month. She graduated. So oh. She finished all her credits and I'm, I got the phone and was just sobbing because I'm like, that's what I needed. That's the piece that like makes this work manageable. Yeah. That's the relational piece. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, well, uh, you're doing, you're doing amazing work, Rachel. Um, it's fun to see you. Right? I, I, I actually vividly remember when you're like, Pfeiffer, I'm going to become a teacher. Yeah. <laughs> and I'd be like, like questioning. And this was a, this was a point in my career that I was still really heavy in mental health, right? Like I had not myself transitioned into education. Yeah. And the minute I moved into education, I, I realized why you did what you did. Yeah. I, I, I fully understood because you, you have highlighted the relational role of teachers is paramount in changing these kids' lives. And I am not, I am not discrediting my work as a school social worker, my work as a clinician, but you, you said that very clear. And I love it that the day in and day out relational component, there's, there's nothing that compares. So, you know, you have this mental health background and I, and I, I think part of our evolution process that needs to happen is that we do take time 
to teach our teachers who are in school some of this content. They do not need to be therapists. That is not what we're looking for, but to have that sense of confidence, to have that sense of, yeah, I can do this. That would be a game changer, I think, across the board for all educators. Yeah, and some of them need the skills themselves. Like we forget that teachers bring their own experiences, their own background, their own skills, that some of that skill building is for them and the students. We talk so many times of dysregulated adults. And Jessica, I don't know if this came for you or the dysregulated adults can't regulate kids. We say that all the time. We see it all the time too. Yeah, we see it all the time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Rachel, thanks for joining us. It means a lot to have you here. You're doing amazing work. It's it's so cool as a friend of yours to see kind of your evolution and you are truly kicking ass. So thank you. Same to you. It was, yeah. this has been fun. Jessica just got the requisite swear word on the podcast. You got to say, you got to say one. I just said it. <laughs> you don't know me that well, but it's t- it took like a lot of self-control to not drop an F-bomb because that usually comes with the territory <laughs> of the work. All right. All right. So we're going to wrap up now. <laughs> uh, let's get out of here quick. Yeah, let's, let's get out of here. Before Rachel drops an F-bomb. Let's <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Rachel. Thank you.